Welcome to The Good Life with Dr. Danny, a program of Danny Yamashiro Ministries and Formation Institute. Divisions of Jesus Christ is calling you. To contact Dr. Danny and learn more about the ministry, visit drdanny.live. Now let's join Dr. Danny and experience The Good Life today. Danny Yamashiro here. Welcome to The Good Life. Encouraging you with inspirational stories to share with family and friends from perspectives of hope in Jesus Christ. Why would God direct a senior international executive for several multi-billion dollar companies doing business on six continents to be a bivocational pastor in both the United States and the United Kingdom, where he holds dual citizenship. How did he become a professor and author? What does he have to say about capitalism in relation to the past and the future? This is the story of Dr. Kenneth J. Barnes. We pause here, as we typically do at the beginning of our program, to remind you the reason we have the Good Life Show is, well, dear friend, is to share how the love of Jesus Christ makes a difference in the lives of people. I'm talking about the love of Jesus so strong, he died on the cross for your sins and mine. He was buried and rose again on the third day, offering God's hope. Dr. Kenneth Barnes knows that very well. He is the Mockler Phillips Professor of Workplace Theology and Business Ethics at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. His research and teaching are the inter- at the inter- intersections of theology and economics and faith at work. He's the author of Redeeming Capitalism. He's married to Debbie. They have three grown children and four grandchildren. Dr. Barnes, welcome to our show. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Where did you grow up? I grew up in New York, and I was the youngest of six children. So if we ever have dinner together, be sure never to try to take anything off my plate, <laughs> or you'll end up with a fork in the back of your hand. Um, we uh, had a lot of love in that household. Um, my mother especially was a woman of tremendous faith. So we just grew up in a really, really settled environment, um, full of compassion for each other, for the world, uh, but also a, a very diverse a group of folks. My uh, father was a conservative Republican, my mother a liberal Democrat. So dinner was always interesting uh, because they encouraged all six of us to be active in current affairs and to hold our ground in our opinions. So uh, I had a, a really almost idyllic 1960s kind of growing up in uh, in New York, and it was it was wonderful. You mentioned being the youngest of six, right? What were the age differences from well, oldest to youngest? 18 years. So my, my sister was the same age as a lot of my friends' mothers in school. And my parents were basically the same age as my friends' grandparents. But the good news is that when you're the youngest of six, um, your parents have figured it out. They can kind of phone it in. So they were great parents. I mean, I couldn't get anything over on them. Not that I tried, but uh, it was impossible to get anything over on them. And I also had five siblings making sure I 
towed the uh, the straight and narrow. Well, being the youngest and, and considering that you, you, you held your own in those dinner discussions, that, that, that says quite a bit. Influences. You mentioned your mother and you mentioned your father. But looking back, who would you say, Ken, influenced you most in those growing up years? It's hard to say, um, really, because when you have a big family and you are that much younger, your siblings have a almost disproportionate influence on your life. So my older brother is the one who really introduced me to business. He's 15 years older than I. So when I was graduating college and trying to decide what I wanted to do with my life, I turned to him. And he's the one who got me interested in business. And I loved it. And I was pretty good at it. So he had a tremendous influence. In terms of, you know, my moral compass, it was absolutely my mother. And I also had great teachers. I mean, when I think back to my, uh, my high school years, for instance, there are teachers and athletic coaches, because I was involved in sports, uh, who to this day I still have contact with. They're getting on in years, uh, but um, you know they were just hugely influential in forming my character. And I had a very strong church life. I was raised Roman Catholic, by the way, and um, the family assumed I was going to become a Catholic priest, and I thought about it for a long time. But an interesting thing happened. I went on a uh, camping trip with the Presbyterian Church and came back from that camping trip with a Bible, and I devoured it. And all of a sudden, I found that some of the things I was being taught didn't square, in my mind, with what I was reading in the Bible. So I had an interesting encounter with my local parish priest, who wasn't very happy with the questions I was asking. About how old were you at that time? Um, I was a teenager. And teenagers always ask hard questions. And so even as I grew into young adulthood, I was still asking those hard questions until finally I came to the conclusion that actually I was no longer a Roman Catholic. I was a proper Reformed Christian. I was a Bible-believing Calvinist, and I didn't even know who John Calvin was. What went on in your heart as you look back that led you to this point of decision? It is so easy to describe that. I read the Bible and fell in love with Jesus Christ, full stop. Just that simple. I, I just thought, I want to follow this person who was also God. And I knew that from my Catholic upbringing. I mean, obviously, Easter, and, you know, I knew the stories of the incarnation, etc. But when I realized the power of the gospel um, in transforming my life, that was it. I, I gave my life to Christ at about age 13 on my own. And how did you grow from that into those early days and those early steps of Christian maturity? Yeah, it's, um, it's interesting because, you know, I, I went off to college like everybody else and kind of drifted a little bit. But then I met a girl, and she is now my wife of nearly 44 years. She was Presbyterian. Uh, and um, she recognized in me this devout faith that I had, and I recognized it in her. And we just decided that we were going to take this walk together. And so we got married right out of college, and uh, we've been married ever since. So, you know, I owe an awful lot of my journey to my long-suffering wife, because let me tell you, 
the journey I've had has been complex, and she has been my partner all the way. We need to get into some degree of that complexity to get a better feel of the flavor of life that you've lived. You mentioned your brother, your older brother, 15 years older, and led you into business or inspired you in some way, and then you found out you were good at it. Uh, What was that path like? How did things become so clear to you? Well, you know, I think part of my upbringing was, um, this is where my father's influence comes in, part of my upbringing was belief in the American dream. My father, you know, was immigrant stock. Um, He had to leave school as a teenager to support his mother and his sister because he had been abandoned by his father. And he just worked harder than anyone I've ever known in my life. So he set that example. He set that bar very high. But the promise was, if you play by the rules and you work hard, you have the right to expect some good results. And that's exactly what happened. I found that I loved the, uh, the intensity of trying to do well in business because it seemed to me to be a, a pretty good system. Uh, and a fair system. As I got older, I found that there were some serious flaws in it. But, you know, on a personal level, just starting right out of college and being able to, you know, make a life for myself and my family, I just found really exciting. And I also loved being involved in creating new things. Um, I'm not an entrepreneur. I'm a corporate guy. But even in my corporate life, I spent most of my career creating new things until I got to the point where I started running things. So here you are running things, multi-billion dollar companies, traveling all over the world on on all continents. In what ways, Ken, have your faith shaped your perception during those 30 years as an international executive? Well, you know, it's it's funny because when you start going up the corporate ladder and you start being involved in board-level decisions, you realize very quickly that every single economic decision that has ever been made was a moral choice. Every one. And so you realize that if you don't exercise your ethics, your moral compass, um, other people will do it for you. And you are then abdicating your responsibility as image bearers of Christ and as people who are given charge to be stewards of all that God has given us. So I found that it was my ethical underpinning that informed all of my decisions. And there were times when I found myself at odds with the majority of people with whom I served, because sadly, a lot of people don't have that moral compass. And so it just informed all of my decision-making until I left the corporate world a number of years ago. You're listening to Dr. Ken Barnes. Dr. Ken Barnes is the author of the book Redeeming Capitalism. We're going to talk more about that when we come back. You can find out more about him and his work, his teaching, his research at gordonconwell.edu. When we come back from our break, yes, Redeeming Capitalism, that's the name of the book. Why did he choose that title? Well, why not Replacing Capitalism? 
We'll talk about that and a few other things. Dr. Ken Barnes served as a chaplain and mentor to international graduate students at Oxford University. More from him sharing a bit heart-to-heart with you, dear friend. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Wandering the road of desperate life Famously beneath the barren sky Leave it to me James 3.13 says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. The Good Life with Dr. Danny is brought to you by generous sponsors. Thank you to Coach Dino Babers and Mrs. Susan Babers, Mr. Edmund Jung and Mrs. May Jung, Mr. Rodney Arias Sr., A1A Electrician, Cedar Assembly of God, and the Thursday Men's Breakfast, Boston. If you, your business, or your church would like to support The Good Life with Dr. Danny, please visit drdanny.live. Join our partnership team. That's drdanny.live. Thank you. You're listening to The Good Life with Dr. Danny, a program of Danny Yamashiro Ministries and Formation Institute. Divisions of Jesus Christ is calling you. Now let's join Dr. Danny and experience The Good Life Welcome today. Welcome back to our show. If you're tuning in right now or maybe caught the tail end of the last segment, look, you can get this program in its entirety. Go to drdanny.live. It's available for you on Spotify and Apple or any major podcast platform. Again, drdanny.live. Find out more about Dr. Ken Barnes at gordonconwell.edu as part of the Oxford Character Project, the Graduate Christian Union, Trinity Forum, and the Veritas Forum. Dr. Ken Barnes encouraged skeptical graduate students to consider the gospel of Jesus Christ and nurtured Christian students in the integration of their faith and work. He is the author of Redeeming Capitalism, Ken, why the title, Redeeming Capitalism, and not Replacing Capitalism? Well, that's a a fantastic question. I tell people that I think everything needs to be redeemed. I mean, that's the purpose, really, of the Incarnation, is to bring redemption to all things, not just to individuals, but ultimately to restore all of creation. Uh, to communion with God eternally. So institutions, as well as people, uh, need redemption. And I tell people that capitalism is an extremely efficient model for the wealth creation, but it has some systemic inherent flaws to it, which we can talk about at some point if you like. So if we don't redeem it, Because, as I mentioned earlier, all economic decisions are moral choices. If we don't redeem it and find a way to bring a moral compass to bear on it, we will hate what replaces it. Because the options for replacing capitalism are really closed systems, like socialism or something along those lines. So redeeming capitalism, in my opinion, is necessary for its survival. You write about... 
postmodern capitalism. Describe some of the corrosive effects of that. Sure. First, let me, if I may, make some distinctions in terms of definitions, because a lot of listeners probably have thought casually about these things, but never really thought to define them. The basic premise of the book is that capitalism is a subject, not an object. It does not possess any hypostasis, to use a good theological term. Mm -hmm. There is no independent agency or will that drives it. Capitalism is just a term we use to describe this phenomenon of highly monetized, lightly regulated free markets. That's all it is. No one invented it. You can't say this is the day it happened. Unlike socialism, for instance, socialism is the public ownership of the means of production, distribution, and exchange. Marxism is a politicized version of socialism. We know who invented Marxism because his name is Karl Marx. And we can point our finger to a time in history when people attempted to replace capitalism with this closed system that misunderstands what wealth is. And wealth is not, as Marx thought, and others, some today still think, is the accumulative use value of commodities. Wealth is actually just the delta between the amount of labor and resources necessary for subsistence and everything else. So if we want human beings to flourish materially, which then gives them the freedom to flourish in other ways, we need to create wealth. The best system for that is capitalism. Now, that said, the capitalism we have is, if you will, the capitalism we've chosen because it's the cumulative effect of countless moral decisions, moral choices. And the fact of the matter is, if you look at the different epochs that capitalism has gone through, the capitalism observed by Adam Smith was still deeply rooted in Judeo-Christian values. There were assumptions about the nature and the purpose of human work and economic activity, which was to serve the common good, not merely individuals. You mentioned Adam Smith, known for Wealth of Nations. You talk about another book that, or you write about another book that he wrote. What was that book? So, Moral Sentiments is the title of that book. Now, Moral Sentiments is really much closer to Smith's heart because Smith wasn't an economist. He was a moral philosopher. And in Moral Sentiments, he was trying to figure out why do people care about each other? What is it that is innate in human beings that makes them care about the welfare of themselves and their neighbors as well? The common wheel. We live in the commonwealth of Massachusetts. That's a concept that's been around for a long time. He codified that brilliantly in Moral Sentiments. So if you read what he has to say about capitalism in Wealth of Nations, you can't understand what he's saying if you don't understand the basic premise, the basic prism through which he understands all human interaction, which is found in the first book. Now, the, the lack of attention given 
just for people to think about capitalism and Adam Smith and wealth of nations without moral sentiments, a, a lot is missed. The guts might be said are are missing uh, from this very system that he nicely wraps these definitions or explanations around. You also talk about Karl Marx. You talk about Max Weber. Say a little bit more about the Marxist impact, the distinctions, but also Weber. Sure. So if you look at these epics, capitalism, the capitalism that was observed by Adam Smith evolved out of mercantilism, which was really beginning to fall under the weight of its own government interventions. And he basically said, if you monetize this system and you allow markets to operate freely, the so-called invisible hand, you will create more wealth and you will benefit more people. So both the crown, the state, and the populace will benefit. And he was right, of course, by making the observation. But he did warn against the potential for excess. He even talked about things like excess profit. Not a term you hear very often nowadays, right? Everyone wants to maximize profit. He said the effect on the economy of excess profits is the same effect as excess interest rates. What it does is it concentrates too much money in too few hands, and it takes that money out of circulation, and it needs to be in circulation in order to benefit and grow the economy as a whole. He was in favor of things that we would call today the living wage, because he said no one should be part of the system who can't benefit from it. So let's make sure people have slightly more at the minimum than what they need for subsistence. Over time, Northern European countries especially adopted it. The Protestant countries adopted it. But in America, it was on steroids. So Karl Marx came along, and he experienced the excesses of capitalism, the degradation of workers, the horrible living conditions of people in the cities. He himself lost three children in, 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 you know, before the age of five, and he had a horrible life, actually. His thesis was, the problem is that there's no such thing as economic growth, that there is a particular amount of wealth available, the use value of all commodities, and what matters is how we distribute that wealth. So he said, let's close the system and distribute the wealth, and that is absolutely wrong. Wealth is not matter. It can be created or destroyed. So he was wrong in assuming that you couldn't create wealth because he was blinded by the excesses and inequalities that he experienced. So if you read um, you know, Marx's work, if you read Das Kapital, you realize that it isn't even a book on economics. It's a polemic on inequality. Very different thing. Max Weber came along and said, how come this system works so well in America? And you know what his conclusion was? Ethics. His conclusion was the Protestant ethic, which went all the way back to our Puritan roots, where people realized that if they worked hard and flourished, then they could expect the blessings of God. And it became a self-perpetuating culture of hard work, thrift, reinvestment, and care for the common good. But he warned, if American capitalism ever became unmoored 
from its ethical roots, it would become a mutant form of capitalism. That's what I call postmodern capitalism. You're listening to Dr. Kenneth Barnes. So we've taken a, a meaningful and necessary circuitous path to this idea, but he goes on. He doesn't stop there at postmodern capitalism. He is pushing through his book, Redeeming Capitalism, towards a word or a phrase, virtuous capitalism. We will talk more about that when we come back. But he also, well, we've got to talk with virtuous capitalism. We've got to talk about this 13th century philosopher, theologian that has so inspired many, but has been foundational to the things that we speak about even before Adam Smith. Again, Dr. Ken Barnes. Find out more at gordonconwell.edu. Stay with us. We're just getting warmed up. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Wandering the road of desperate life Famously beneath the barren sky Leave it to me I'll lead you home Hi, this is Danny Yamashiro. In what way have you seen God work powerfully in your life? Do you have a story to share about God's provision and deliverance? Have you experienced God's healing? Do you have a testimony that will encourage others? 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says, Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up. I want to share your story on our radio podcast. Please visit drdanny.live and share your Jesus story by clicking on the link at the top left of the home page. If you'd like to share your testimony in the form of a letter, send your correspondence to Formation Institute, P.O. Box 381-222, Cambridge, Massachusetts, 02238. That's Formation Institute, P.O. Box 381-222, Cambridge, Massachusetts, 02238. You're listening to The Good Life with Dr. Danny, a program of Danny Yamashiro Ministries and Formation Institute. Divisions of Jesus Christ is calling you. Now let's join Dr. Danny and experience The Good Life today. Right, so a small amount of people have caused a great deal of trouble worldwide. We're talking about the financial crisis of 2008, which Ken Barnes writes about in detail And I really appreciate that. You can find out more about his book at Amazon.com, more about his teaching, his research, his ministry at GordonConwell.edu. Professor Kenneth Barnes, his fellowships include Oxford Center for Religion and Culture there at Regents Park College, Oxford, International Fellowship of Evangelical Students at Louvain, Belgium, Ridley College, Melbourne, Australia, and the Royal Society for the Encouragement of Arts, Manufacturers and Commerce, the FRSA, the names like Charles Dickens, Adam Smith, Benjamin Franklin, have all been members there. He sits with us in studio today. It's a blessing to to have him with us indeed. So, the 13th century philosopher, I didn't even mention his name. I'll let you mention his name. Why is this theologian philosopher so important to capitalism? Well, 
Before we talk about Thomas Aquinas, <laughs> if I may just answer the one question you asked before the break that uh, I didn't get to. Yes. What is postmodern capitalism? Yes, yes, yes. yes. We're just leading up to it. That's now. right. Yes. Okay. So I define postmodern capitalism as capitalism that is devoid of a moral compass and resistant, if not impervious, to ethical constraint. Mm. And it's basically because our culture, our society, and particularly business culture, has adopted what's known as ethical egoism as its primary ethos, which is the only thing that matters is self-interest. And if everyone acts purely in their self-interest, all the boats will rise with the tide. Well, we know that doesn't work, but it's become very popular. In economic terms, the Friedman Doctrine was frankly built on ethical egoism. So what happens what is... What is that quote that you you you, you write about, in that, that Milton Friedman quote? Th- that's right. So he famously wrote uh, an article uh, in the Sunday New York Times in the early 1970s where he said that the only ethical responsibility of a corporate executive is to make as much money as possible within the constraints of custom, moral custom, and law. Well, as I describe in the book, there was no violation of either law or ethical custom in the collapse of Lehman Brothers, and yet they made grotesquely immoral decisions, which nearly brought down the entire global financial system. So his, his model of ethics is simply wrong because it is fundamentally based on ethical egoism. So in the book, I say, well, what are we going to do? We no longer have the kind of uh, religious hegemony of Christianity that we had in America in the 1900s when Max Weber was making his observations. What can we appeal to? And what I say is we need to appeal to virtue. This is where Aquinas comes in. Thomas Aquinas basically baptized, if you will, Aristotelian ethics. Aristotelian virtue ethics are part of common grace. They precede the Gospels because they're part of what it means to be created in the image of God, recognizing that each of us are image bearers and each of us have a desire to do good. In spite of our depravity, we still have this imago Dei, the image of God in all of us, that, that makes us want to do good. So the, the cardinal virtues, as Thomas Aquinas called them, were prudence, justice, courage, and temperance. What I argue in the book is we've lost those virtues. Prudence, we've lost completely. Prudence, by the way, is not merely caution. Prudence, according to both Aristotle and Aquinas, is knowing what to want and what not to want. So our value system is warped. We've forgotten that the purpose of economic activity and business and work isn't just personal wealth accumulation. It's human flourishing across the entire spectrum. That doesn't mean some people won't do better than others. That doesn't mean some people won't be rich and some won't. But we need to make sure that the system is not so distorted that we close out entire swathes of the population for the sake of making very small groups of people incredibly rich. Courage is being willing to face that which is at enmity with virtue itself. And I can tell you, 
I've been in board meetings. I've been in conversations where I was the lone voice for virtue in a business ethics decision. And it's a dangerous place. You can lose your job over that sort of thing. But as Christians, we're called to take those risks, to stand up for virtue, for righteousness. That's part of being a Christian. And justice is so basic. You you don't have to teach any of my grandchildren what justice is. They inherently understand that's not fair. So, So justice, we've lost a sense of justice because we've gone over to this beggar thy neighbor mentality. It's okay for me to desire the bankruptcy of my competitor because I'll get richer. Well, that's like if your neighbor's house is burning down, instead of calling the fire department, you throw more fuel on the fire. That doesn't make sense. And lastly, temperance. It isn't cool anymore, right, to be temperate. In fact, bling and excess and conspicuous consumption and conspicuous wealth has become celebrated in our culture. If you boil down that ethos into the business realm, you get the very activities and the very decision-making processes and the results that we saw in the global financial crisis. But here's where the real genius of Aquinas is. Aquinas adds three more virtues, faith, hope, and love. And in my humble opinion, the strength of this book is that I try to explain exactly why a healthy economic system needs faith, hope, and love. 1 Corinthians 13, 13, faith, hope, and love. Why, Ken Barnes, is that needed in economics? Well, first of all, because we call them the theological virtues because we ascribe their source to God, but they are just as universal as the cardinal virtues. It is impossible for anyone to conduct business without a certain degree of faith in systems, in processes, in the fair dealings of the people with whom they're doing business. I had a wonderful experience in Oxford years ago. I was giving a a talk on actually the arguments for the existence of God and nothing to do with economics. It was an apologetics uh, meeting. And I asked the group, is there anyone here who doesn't actually order their life based on a faith proposition. And some poor young guy put his hand up. He said, me, I deal in facts, not faith. And well, we've all heard that. So I said, okay, do you have any money? He said, yeah. I said, what have you got? He took a five-pound note out of his pocket. I said, I'll bet in 30 seconds I can convince you that you order most of your life on a faith proposition. And I explained what fiat money is. And with that, took the five-pound note and put it in my pocket. And the place erupted in laughter. But just think about it. It says, in God we trust on our money. There's no vault with all the gold that backs that currency. We have faith in the central bank, the Federal Reserve, or the Bank of England in the case of England or what have you. We have faith in our courts. We have faith in the SEC. We have faith in the government. All of those things are required. For Christians, however— It starts with faith in God. If we start understanding that all faith is subordinate to our faith in a loving God, in a God who says what is required of you, that you do justice, that you love mercy, that you walk humbly with your God. That changes how we do business, but it's necessary. And hope, what do you need to make capitalism work? You need capital. 
Who's going to risk their capital without the hope of return? So you need hope. And lastly, the most important is love. In our culture, we have a very mawkish understanding of love, kind of a sentimental view of love. That's not the biblical view. In fact, the biblical view of love is given to us in a symbol, and that's the cross. When he who had everything emptied himself for we who had nothing. If we approach economics with faith, hope, and love, we'll never have another crash like we had in 2008. Dr. Ken Barnes, author of Redeeming Capitalism. Ken, as you go on in the book, one, as one is reading, one might say, all right, I get it. Ken Barnes, I get it. It's going to be a, a long-term process, you, you say. I must do things differently. Okay, I get it. Faith, hope, and love. This motivation. Say more about the motivation. You talk about faith in God. What would motivate me or someone else, someone that doesn't even have these underpinnings? Here we are in a generally Christian, it's a Christian station. Well, we have seekers that are listening, of course. Where does someone who is void of these groundings, where do they find this motivation? It's interesting you ask that question because Aquinas said that virtue is forged in the furnace of virtuous acts. In fact, the great paradox but also the great blessing of virtue is that the more we do virtuous things, the more we desire virtuous things. So you have to take a step in faith and you have to say, I'm not going to sell my soul for short-term gain when I know that I'm perpetuating perpetuating a system that is self-destructive in the end if we don't redeem it. And I have to say the good news is, you know, I taught at Said Business School uh, at Oxford as well as my other teaching in theology because the uh, principal of the uh, of the business school wanted people with ethics backgrounds to be teaching the students. Why? Because a whole generation of business students are coming to business school saying, we want a different kind of capitalism. They don't want to replace it. They don't want to jettison it. But they their economic consciousness was formed during the global financial crisis. And we've seen what happens if we take our eye off the ball. Look what just happened with the collapse of SVB and some other regional banks. We're seeing that 10 years after the crisis, we got lazy. And we started rescinding laws that were put into place for the purpose of putting checks and balances in place to help discourage the excesses. So it's, it, it is a multi-generational process, but I have to tell you, my generation didn't do a very good job. So some of the motive for me writing this book is as an apologia for what it could be. Dr. Ken Barnes, when we come back, we'll talk more with him. In our final segment, how does he envision what he describes as bottom-up influences to move in the direction of virtuous capitalism or virtuous change if top-down influences are still blinded by greed? What about that question? We'll talk about that and a few other things and maybe even spend some time in prayer for you, dear friend. 
Thanks for being with us. There's more. Stay with us. GordonConwell.edu. We'll be right back. Wandering the road of desperate life Famously beneath the barren sky Leave it to me Hi, this is Danny Yamashiro. A woman in Boston recently told me, I listen to your program every day and was inspired by the man who became an NFL quarterback. A person in Orlando said, I heard your podcast of the man who came to God during the Jesus movement. Another friend said, that pastor who gave one of his organs to a boy without ever meeting the child touched me about Jesus' love. The Good Life with Dr. Danny is made possible through financial partners. Would you consider sending a gift to keep our program going? Podcasts have been downloaded in 49 states and 35 nations in the last six months. Please help us expand our reach. Go to drdanny.live and click support this media ministry. That's drdanny.live and click support this media ministry. You're listening to The Good Life with Dr. Danny, a program of Danny Yamashiro Ministries and Formation Institute. Divisions of Jesus Christ is calling you. Now let's join Dr. Danny and experience The Good Life So you're saying, okay, Danny, Dr. Ken Barnes, he writes Redeeming Capitalism, but, but, but does he have any other books? Yes, in addition to Redeeming Capitalism, Dr. Barnes also wrote Light from the Dreaming Spires, Reflections on Ministry to Gen Y. You can find out more about that book. Get that book at Amazon.com and of course, Redeeming Capitalism, Amazon.com. Find out more about him at GordonConwell.edu. Ken, you write about envisioning bottom-up influences in the direction of virtuous change. If top-down influences are still blinded by greed, say more about how you envision that. Well, as I say in the book, we need both. It, it can't only be top-down, and it can't only be bottom-up. One of the problems with top-down is that people mistakenly think we can solve the problem through regulation and legislation, and we can't. History has proven that we need good regulation. I mentioned that just in the segment before the break. But that's not going to solve the problem, because the, the bad guys are always one step ahead of the lawmakers. And they figure out really creative ways to work around the system. But what we do need is to change the narrative. And we're already starting to see that. You know, the Business Roundtable uh, uh, document that came out in 2019, which said, we accept the fact that the Friedman Doctrine isn't really an efficient way of viewing business ethics. That we have to start thinking about all of the stakeholders in the system, not just our shareholders. Now, shareholders naturally have a position of primus inter paris because it's their money. But they aren't the only stakeholders. They aren't the only people that need to be considered. So changing the narrative is the first thing you do to affect the top down. Because people in the corner office are pretty smart. And they listen to their customers. They listen to the people whom they serve. They listen to their shareholders. That's why there's an entire industry right now of Christian ethical investing. Uh, including a wonderful company right here in the Boston area, which specializes 
uh, in, in investing in companies that are walking the walk, not just talking the talk. In terms of the bottom up, you know, yes. Bridget, so, briefly yeah. say what, what, what company are you, are you speaking of? Even. Eventide. And, uh, you know, I know Finney very well. Uh, I know Dolores Bamford is their, is their chief investment officer very well. In fact, she was a doctoral student of mine. And, and they work diligently to ensure that anyone who invests in their funds can put their head on the pillow at night knowing that they are investing in virtuous businesses. They're not necessarily all Christian-owned businesses, by the way, but they're businesses that reflect these values. You know, All related to narrative. narrative. It's all related to narrative and, as I said, actions. People walking the walk, not just talking the talk. There's a lot of virtue signaling out there. There are a lot of companies who put on their annual reports. We do all these wonderful things. And then when you peel back the onion, you find that they're treating their supply chain very badly or whatever it might be, or polluting excessively. You know. So you really have to do your homework. But this movement toward ensuring that the money is following the virtue is very, very important. In terms of the bottom up, however, it's interesting. I say in the book, the book is a can-do book. I describe the fact that we can do better. It's not a how-to book. I don't say, okay, now you got to do this, you got to do that. But ever since the book came out, people have been saying, hey, you got to write a can-do book, or a how-to book, rather. So one of the things we did was we convened a conference at Bretton Woods, the same site of the famous 1944 conference that established the U.S. dollar system. And we brought in senior business executives. We brought in theologians. We brought in economists. We brought in local pastors. And we asked these questions. And people were so vulnerable and so honest in describing the incalculable pressure they're under to conform to the ways of postmodern capitalism. What we came away with is this. We as the church need to step into this void and take the words of Romans very seriously. Be not conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. So the church, the seminary, people of goodwill, regardless of their religious beliefs, need to start insisting that we are going to do things differently. And it just so happens, from a Christian perspective, the title of my next book in the class that I'm teaching in Oxford this summer is called Redeeming Sabbath. Because if you think about it, if it all comes down to our lack of prudence, if it all comes down to the fact that our value system is completely out of whack, it is not aligned with God's values, that all starts by our jettisoning of Sabbath. Because Sabbath is not just a religious ordinance. Sabbath is a prism through which we are called to view all of our economic activity, paid and unpaid, how we spend every day all of our waking hours. That is really what Sabbath is about. And it's a gift from God. And we've tossed it out as though it has no value. A prism indeed. A prism refracts. So what is that refracting of us, of our lives, of our values, of our actions? You're listening to Dr. Kenneth Barnes, Redeeming Capitalism, the the can-do book, 
and Redeeming Sabbath, the how-to book is on its way. A shifting of gears a bit now, Ken, on a personal note. How has the Lord, how has the Lord helped you through your years of this pinch-yourself life that you live? How has the Lord helped you through difficult times? Uh, Purely by his presence. I'll give an example. Uh, About two years ago, I went in for a pretty routine physical procedure, an endoscopy. They put a thing down your throat. And the surgeon, um, his instrument slipped and lacerated my duodenum, which is not an organ you want lacerated. And so when I came out from the anesthesia, instead of being confronted by a very nice person with a cup of tea saying, you're fine, go home, I had six people in surgical masks saying, you're in big trouble and we're going in to operate. And they, they cut my body from just below my sternum to below my navel. They literally opened me up to try to, to patch the, the, uh, the laceration that the doctor had accidentally made. And as I was going into the emergency room, I had a moment of peace that I cannot put into words. But I knew that Jesus Christ was with me in that operating room, and if he was taking me home, I was ready. And if he was keeping me here for a reason, I was going to do my best to fulfill whatever that reason is. And that's the kind of presence I have always felt with the Lord. That was a very dramatic one because it happened to be as I was knocking on the door of death. And yet here I am sitting with you saying that that peace, that gift that I got from God was so overwhelming that I didn't sue the doctor for malpractice because even though I had a great case, (laughs) he didn't try to do that to me. And it would be like thumbing my nose at God Thank you for the gift, but I'm going to make out financially because of this poor guy's mistake. And so our culture would say, you fool, sue the doctor. But my faith says, you blessed man. You were given a gift that you didn't expect, and you wouldn't recommend people going through that. But you know what? It just reinforced God's presence in my life. Two weeks ago, My nephew, 24 years old, killed in a tragic accident. I had to go to Virginia and be part of the memorial service. What got us through it? The whole family? Our knowledge that Jesus Christ was with him, that he was with Jesus, and that Jesus was in the room. It is so palpable when people allow themselves to let Jesus in. You can overcome anything, in my humble opinion. Ken, a prayer. Someone, as you speak, may be longing to experience the presence of God, the presence of the Lord Jesus, as you describe. Whatever their situation is, they know and God knows. The Lord's placed you here in this moment to minister, to pray for them. Would you pray for that dear friend, a brother and sister in Christ, or someone seeking the Lord at this time? I'd be happy to. I'd be honored to. 
Lord, I pray that you would knock on their door and that they would let you in. That whatever is keeping them from making that decision, I pray that you would roll away that stone just as the stone was rolled away on Easter morning. May they enjoy the knowledge of the resurrection and eternal life because our time here is fleeting, but eternity is forever. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Ken, thank you. Thank you for being with us today, for sharing your heart, your work, redeeming capitalism. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. Insights from Dr. Ken Barnes, gordonconwell.edu, challenges as well. God's timing, my friend, is perfect, and there's no better time than right now to share the love of Jesus with someone near you. And look, if you haven't done so, hey, this might be that perfect moment for you, just as Ken said, to open your heart to Christ. Go to drdanny.live for next steps. Find resources to reach family and friends. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and major podcast platforms. 1 Corinthians 13, 13, three things will last forever, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. It's always a blessing to be with you. Thank you to Dr. Kenneth Barnes, gordonconwell.edu. Until next time, along with my producer, Brian Torres, social media director, Luke Yamashiro, guest coordinator, Jan Yi, and board operator, Joseph Valdivieso. I'm Danny Yamashiro. Remember, the Lord is with you as you share the love of Jesus with someone today. Thank you for listening to today's broadcast of The Good Life with Dr. Danny. We hope that today's program has been a blessing for you and that you may find hope in hearing how God's Word affects people from all walks of life. The Good Life with Dr. Danny is a listener-supported program, and we'd like for you to prayerfully consider becoming a sponsor or donor. To contact Dr. Danny and learn more about the ministry, visit drdanny.live. That's drdanny.live. Be sure to tune in weekdays at 6 p.m. to hear The Good Life with Dr. Danny. Until next time, may God richly bless you with The Good Life.